Good morning, everybody. You've braved the rain. Let's sing hymn 845. 845 stands as one, four, and five. Where charity and love prevail, there God is ever found, brought here together by Christ's love. By love are we thus bound. Let strife among us be unknown. Let all contention cease. Be God's the glory that we seek. Be ours his holy peace. Let us recall that in our midst dwells Christ, his only Son, as members of his body joined. We are in him made one. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy upon us sinners. Amen. Again we pray. O God, you declare your almighty power above all in showing mercy and pity. Mercifully grant us such a measure of your grace that we may obtain your gracious promises and be made partakers of your heavenly treasures. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. All right. Take a look at the prayer from the fathers this week. If you don't typically take the congregation at prayer home to use it in your household, do it at least for this week. St. Bridget of Ireland is uh, the one who wrote the prayer that we're using this week, and it's a great prayer, so I would just encourage you to take it home to use that prayer. Now, to the verse of the week, John 14, 27, let's speak this together. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. So firstly, who is speaking? Right, these are Jesus' words. To whom is he speaking? Whoever else is there. <laughs> Whoever else is there. Well, you know, you're not wrong. Uh, anybody, can anyone be more specific than that? <laughs> who is he, who are these words directed to? This is John's gospel from about John 12, 13, all the way through 18. It's the dialogue in the upper room. So he's speaking to his disciples. 
And this is all a part of what he is saying to them. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke just tell you they celebrated the Passover in the upper room. John tells you here are all of the things that Jesus talked about while they were in the upper room. And also he washed his disciples' feet and taught them what that meant. So John expands on that. So he's speaking to the disciples. Peace I leave with you. What peace? Well, what is this peace? It is my peace. So when Jesus says, peace I leave with you, he doesn't just say, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you peace in your heart or peace in your mind or peace in your life or peace in your economy or peace in your household. If Jesus said any of that, then you would have a good reason not to believe in him because when was the last time you had true peace in your heart or in your mind or in your household or in your economy or in your country or in the world? Well, I'm only 32 years old and I can't remember a time when I've had that kind of peace. So if that's what Jesus is talking about, he's a liar. Either that or he just can't do it. But that isn't what he's talking about. He's not talking about your peace. He's talking about my peace, Jesus' peace. And uh, Jesus' peace is a different kind of peace than what the world would offer, or what the world would say peace is. What is Jesus's peace? Is it not the contentment knowing that uh, everlasting life in heaven awaits us upon our death? Yes, I couldn't have said it better. The contentment in the knowledge that, to, I'm going to paraphrase you a little bit, uh, in the knowledge that this is not the best life and that there is eternal life coming in paradise that Christ has won for us. That is true peace. The knowledge that no matter what happens here, there is something yet greater still to come. And contentedness in the knowledge that all things that take place here, the Lord still governs. There's nothing that happens here that God looks at and goes, oh, whoops, uh, ooh, you know, I didn't quite think of that one. Ooh, ah, sorry. There's never a time when he does that. Everything is, is permitted or enacted purposefully and for his, according to his own knowledge and reason. And therefore, we can say something like, uh, God works all things together for good for those who trust in him. So that, that is a peace so that even when, you're, when you have absolute chaos, you still have Christ's peace, which is the knowledge that he comes to bring of everlasting life and salvation and the working of God, even in the deepest, darkest depths of the chaos of this world. I give to you, he says. If he's giving it to you, what does that imply about his peace? Somebody, I didn't hear whatever. Yes, it's a gift. And what does... It, well, yes, but if it's a gift, you don't have to earn it. And did you have it before he gave it? No. So... I'm giving it to you because you don't have it. 
So we'll just say, you need it, and you don't have it. And I'm giving it to you as gift. And all of this stems from love. He wants you to have it because he loves you. And he gives it to you freely so that you don't have to earn it because he loves you. He knows you couldn't earn it. So he gives it freely. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. We talked about that already just a little bit. The kind of peace that the world gives is in, uh, shall we say, satisfaction. I will be at peace when I am satisfied with X, Y, or Z. Or to use Morris's word again, content. But the problem with the world's sense of peace is I will be content when I have enough money. I will be content when my children behave the way they should, whether they're kids, still young children, or whether they are adults. I will be content when I love the job that I have. I will be content when uh, my doctors figure out what's wrong with me and I'm finally healthy again. I will be content only when these criteria are met. And then you live your entire life not content because guess what? The criteria are never met. You will never have enough money. You will never be healthy enough. You will never love your job the way that you wish that you did. You will never have the kind of peace and quiet in the world that you surely would want. There will never be, on a grander scale, perfect peace and an end to all conflict between individuals in relationships and between nations at large. There will always be warring political parties and factions. There will always be warring nations. There will always be warring ideologies. So when the world seeks to give you peace, it's like what we'll hear today in Jesus' rebuke uh, over the city of Jerusalem. Or no, this is from Jeremiah, excuse me, the prophet Jeremiah. And he says, they cry, peace, peace, where there is no peace. So you have soothsayers, the golden-tongued ones, who tell you, oh, everything's great, it's never been better. It's like, this is not a political statement in any way, okay? It's like the White House press secretary. And it doesn't matter what president is in office, the job of the White House press secretary is to be the golden-tongued one to tell you peace, peace, when you're <laughs> not so dumb as to realize there is no peace. What are you talking about? Oh, what he really meant was, in a way, it's a good lesson in the Eighth Commandment because they really put the best construction on everything. But that's the whole, like, you have people telling you, it's never been, the economy has never been better. There's never been so many jobs. We've never had so much surplus. It's never been better than it is now. And the world is on fire behind them. And they're like Leslie Nielsen in Police Academy saying, nothing to see here. And that's the world's peace. And it is contrasted quite starkly with Christ's peace. Yes, sir. Uh, just along with what you just said there, uh, the fact that uh, things are uh, generally the economy and culture is very important in 
Yes. And our suicides are at an all time high. Yeah, we are the most prosperous nation in the world, and yet 99.3 or 4% of our citizens are on some kind of anti-anxiety or antidepressant, and we have the highest suicide rate out of almost any civilized nation in the world. What's the problem? We're so prosperous, shouldn't we be happy? Well, no. In fact, what are the happiest nations? <laughs> the third world countries. The people that have nothing are all happier than you who have everything. Because they, they begin to understand a deeper sense of contentedness and peace that's not dependent upon what I have or the quality of my life. They are also the nations where abortion and euthanasia are not as big of problems as they are in the civilized world because when you have nothing, you realize how precious life is. When, all, when your entire life is you know, centered around commodities, life becomes nothing more than commodity and people become nothing more than either beneficiary, uh, uh, beneficial commodities or um, commodities that hinder you from, from your greatest good. Okay, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. This is really important. Why, he's talking to a number of people, why is heart singular and not plural? This is a question I bet you you've never ever thought about. Why is it singular, your heart? Um, you can, and I'm not going to say that's the wrong way to read the Bible, but, there, but I will say there is a deeper meaning behind that singular. How many bodies are there in Christ? One. When you are in Christ, and Christ gives you his gifts, and he touches you with his gospel, and he puts himself in you, and he, he goes in you, and you are incorporated into him. You are one body with one heart, and it is corporate. It is corporate. So when he says, let not your heart be troubled, it's not that he says to every single individual, hey, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. It's that he's saying to his whole church, to all of his Christians as one unified body, I am, I am Christ the head. Things are going to be okay because I am leaving you with my peace. Therefore, do not be troubled and do not be afraid. And that's important because you have every reason to be troubled and you have every reason to be afraid. But he says, don't be. Come what may, you will still have a life to live, even if they put you to death. They can't kill you. What are they going to do? They can't stop the resurrection. They can't stop the coming of Christ. So why fear anything they can do to you here? What's the big deal? Okay, let's speak this again. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. 
What motivated Christ to die and make full payment for your sins? His great love for his Father and for me and other sinners, as it is written in John 14, Romans 5, Galatians 2, and Ephesians 5. Hey, look at that. As it is written in John 14, whoa, it's like this was planned. His great love. What, why does he, what motivates him to give you peace? His great love. Where, does, where is his peace rooted? In his death, in his uh, sacrifice for sin. And his love for the Father, first, like the Didache says, love the God who made you. First, love the God who made you. Second, love your neighbor. He loves his Father and he loves me. Now here's where it is explicitly personal, which is why every time you go to the sacrament and the Eucharist is given to you, it's the body of Christ given for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. Every individual gets that, that it's for you. And everybody who sits there and listens hears it again and again, for you, for you, for you, for you, for you. Because it is for me and it is for you and you and you and you and you and you. There is the personal and the corporate and they're not separate, they are together but also for other sinners. How many? All other sinners, correct. Okay, very good. Um, to Sunday school. Yes. Yes. And in, if you're going to take it that way, there's kind of an eschatological component here. Eschatological means it's about the end times. Uh, so, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Don't be troubled, don't be afraid. That includes when I come again. Hey, I'm giving you my peace, and when I come again, you can have confidence and not have fear. You know, when Jesus comes again on the last day with the great resurrection to judge both the living and the dead, are Christians, are Christians going to be afraid? Will they or should they be? Two different they're the same question. You only think that they're different. Will Christians be afraid? No. When you pop up out of the ground, when Jesus blows his wake-up alarm trumpet, and you wake up, and he's there saying, hey, time to get up. Come on. Are you going to look at him and say, oh, woe is me. It's the day of judgment. No. If that, I mean, if that's what you think, then we ought to change the funeral liturgy, hadn't we? Because the whole funeral liturgy is, is uh, very much hopeful. We want Jesus to come. We're looking forward to Jesus coming. We're not afraid of him coming. What do you have to fear from the judgment? Nothing. Why not? Why not? 
Jesus has already taken. What's there to judge? I mean, that's the question. What is there to judge in you? All the Ten Commandments are kept when what is not kept is forgiven. How many of your sins did Jesus not die for? <laughs> None of them. So how many of your sins are on the cross? All of them. How many of your sins are forgiven? All of them. So when Jesus comes back and looks in his ledger, to use the language of the parable from last week, when Jesus looks at his ledger, what is he going to see in there under your name? Yeah, it's, it's this, remember what I said in the sermon, the, the parable of the unjust steward tells you something really neat. It, it, God is even more ridiculous than that unjust steward. The, the unjust steward erases things and marks it down. You owe 100, well, I'm changing it to 80. Oh, that's a great deal. Now I don't owe as much. You know, I wish somebody would do that with my student loans. I wish old Uncle Sam would just come in and say, oh, you owe this much? Well, I'll tell you what. We'll just tell you, we'll, we'll call it here and then we'll call it even, okay? Hey, all right. I still owe a little bit, but it's a whole lot less than what I owed before. And isn't that a dandy? But what Jesus does is even more than that because he, does, he just crosses the whole thing out. What do you owe me? Oh, yeah, nothing. In fact, he erases it completely so it's not even in the book. There's not even a record of it. Because when Jesus atones for sins, what he effectively does is undoes the sin so that it is as if you never even committed it to begin with. It's not like he just turns the other way and says, well, I remember that you did this, but I also said I forgave you, so I'm going to move forward. And that's how we are. Well, I remember, you know, but, you know, I'm supposed to forgive, so I'm just going to put that behind. But you always know about it. But God isn't like that. God forgets because there's nothing to remember. Yes? Thank you for explaining that last week because that I, until last week, I was still baffled by that. Oh, the parable? parable so. Oh, well, there's a lot of fun things to say about that parable. The, so, but even above just completely erasing even a history of debt, he gives you credit. This is what I said. He not only just erases your debt, uh, that would be good enough if he were just to say, hey, you know what, we're square. Or, or you come and you say, well, here's what I owe you. And he says, uh, what do you owe me? What debt? Like, you know, young Frankenstein. Wasn't your hump on the other side? What hump? You know, <laughs> that's what Jesus is like. Uh, I love it. He's like that in, in the Emmaus Road, too. Are you some kind of idiot that you don't know all of these things that happened with this guy Jesus? Oh, what things? What debt? What do you owe me? I don't know anything about a debt. Oh, where did you get that weird idea? My book has nothing in it for you. And it's not, that's not good enough. It's not good enough to be square. It's not good enough to be even. It's not good enough to be reset. He actually wants you to have more than that. So when he atones, he gives you credit. So that actually when he looks at his ledger, he says, oh yeah, I owe you something. 
I owe you something, so come with me and I'll give you what I owe you. I'll give you what I promised. I'll give you what my ledger says I'll give you. And you know my word is good for it, so hey, come further up and further in with me and we'll have a ball. We'll go to the, the wedding feast of the Lamb in his kingdom that has no end and you won't have to worry about waking up the next morning, so eat and drink whatever and how much you want. No tummy aches and no headaches, if you get what I'm saying, in heaven. Eat and drink and be merry forever in the Lamb's kingdom with the best wine and the best food in the presence of God. Now that's credit. You get something out of that. You're not, you don't owe anything. You get stuff. Yes. So Charles and I were having a conversation this morning, which is something that I used to struggle with that I don't struggle with as much anymore. He said, how can you be happy in heaven? I don't understand. Well, first he was talking about the library in heaven, and it will have only the Bible, but then if you only had the Bible to read, that would be boring, and you need more books. Would it? Is the Bible boring? <laughs> Who thinks that? And you need more books, and then it evolved into, if you're happy all the time, how can you know you're happy? Because you can't be happy unless you're sad. And so, what, so heaven is going to be boring. Yeah. Because you're only happy. He can't. And I understand that. I, you know... On earth we have, you know, you have to strive and you have challenges and challenges are exciting and make you happy. And if you're in heaven, it's hard to comprehend only being happy, isn't it? Yes. Hey, good on you sitting in the front. Now I get to see that baby. That's great. Now we all get entertained today. Yes, um, yes I understand. The, so the sainted Kurt Marquardt, you maybe know the name. He was sort of a big, big shot Lutheran kind of came out of the Seminex days. He was a classmate of David Scare, if you know the name David Scare. Scare is still a professor in Fort Wayne. Kurt Marquardt has died. Um, he, he was from Australia. He wrote an article called Motorcycles in Heaven. And I have, a, I have it in a book. So if you remind me after church, I can give you the book and you can borrow it. But he wrote this, uh, you probably could find it online too, but that's up to you if you want to borrow the book. Um, yeah, so he wrote this thing, and I think it stemmed from something that a child asked him in one of the confirmation classes that he taught while he was still a pastor and before he was a professor. And the kid said, the child said very much the same thing, well, heaven's going to be boring. Are there going to be motorcycles in heaven? Because I really want to ride motorcycles. And he's, he was like, well, I don't really know. Uh, probably not. And the kid was like, well, then what's the point? <laughs> like, if I can't have fun in heaven. And I, honestly, it's the same thing uh, like with the story I tell about my brother's Spider-Man room in his house in heaven. Uh, everybody thinks that... Happiness in heaven is defined the same way that we would define it here. And, it, and it's not. It's a different kind of happiness. The, the best thing to tell the children is heaven is going to be a church service that never ends. It just keeps going and going. <laughs> I love that. You should see their faces. <laughs> I mean, church is great, but we all have our limits. Um, it's, yeah, so... Are there, going to be, are there going to be books in heaven? Ah, I don't know. You just wonder, is there going to be a need for us to read anything? Is there going to be a need for us to read the Bible in heaven? We're going to have the word right there. No, I say, I don't really, I don't think so. 
you're going to have everything that you needed and everything that you ever wanted and everything you didn't know that you wanted but know in the moment that you always did and then that makes the motorcycle or the Spider-Man room or the library look like dog spit because, well, why, why, do I need, why do I need a Velcro room so I can be Spider-Man? Why do I need to go to the library? Why do I need to read a book? Why do I need to do any of the things that I really used to enjoy when I was living on Earth? Because now I've got God himself right in front of me, talking to me, loving me, and I'm par participating in this great feast. I mean... Maybe here's my question. When was the last time you ever went to a wedding reception and were completely bored out of your mind? <laughs> the last one you went to? I don't know. I, I've never been to one. I have definitely... That was a joke. No, I get you. I've, I've definitely been to wedding receptions where I've said, I am, I am done and I would like to leave but I've never been to one where there was not at least some entertainment. And perhaps in your younger days, when you partied hard and went to bed late or early, uh, the wedding receptions were a great time to have a fun party with people that you haven't seen in a while, which is kind of the point of what, like, why, why should you always have wine and dancing at a wedding? so that you can make sure that you have good high spirits and lots and lots of fun with the people you love. That's my opinion. Uh, you know, Chesterton says, he says lots of things about drinking, and one of the things he says is uh, drink Drink only because you want to and never because you have to. And if you abide by that rule, you will live like the laughing peasant of Italy, which I love. Go to a wedding, have a little wine, get rosy-cheeked, and then take your husband or your wife out and dance. It's just fun. You can't be bored. So, you know, that's what it's going to be like. Like, when's the last time you went to the reception and said, boy, I wish there was a Spider-Man room at this reception. The alcohol and the dancing isn't enough. The good food isn't enough. When's the last time you went and said, you know, boy, the dancing's fun, but I wish I could curl up with a good book in the corner right now and be away from all of these people that I care about. Uh, so uh, that's the imagery that... Jesus uses on purpose is this wedding celebration because it's a celebration, but a wedding celebration is the best kind of celebration. Like, no, nobody goes and, and drinks and dances at a funeral, unless you're from Ireland. <laughs> In which case, you know, every, yeah, or I guess Catholic. Well, there, you know, there's a solid Irish percentage there. But the... the the point I'm trying to make is there is a, there's a much different, there's a big difference between the kind of a celebration that you would have after the funeral when you go and you have your lunch and you eat and you drink and you laugh and you cry with each other and you, you end up walking away from a funeral celebration almost saying, you know, I had a kind of a good time. It was nice to see so-and-so. We had some good laughs. We told some good stories. But, but a wedding celebration is different. Like you go and you just have fun. It's, you're so happy that they're married. You wish them the best. It's good to see the family. It's good to be together. It's good to eat food. It's good to dance. It's good to just not worry about something for one evening and have a little party. 
Everybody needs that. And that's, Jesus uses that on purpose because that's what it is. It's that one split second in your life where you say, I'm actually really happy right now. I've got good food, I've got good drink, I've got a pretty lady on my arm, there's a young couple, and they just got married, and we wish them the best, and you know what? Things are okay. And that's, it's going to be that, but so much more. You just couldn't want anything else. Morris? I think our ability to define heaven is limited by what our experiences to be able, I think our ability to conceptualize heaven is limited. Certainly. Because we're limited. Yeah, you'll, what we're told is it's going to be magnificent. Mm -hmm. Well, magnificent is a big deal. Sure. And that should be enough. Yeah. Magnificent. Wow. There's all kinds of imagery. Here's what it's going to be like. He never says, this is what it is. He says, this is what it is like. Why? Because you couldn't possibly fathom what it is. You will, but you can't fathom it now. So you say, it's like this, but better. Or it's like this, but better. Or it's like this, but better. And it's all little facets of one whole gem that you can't quite grasp now. So you can, you can wonder about, well, are there motorcycles in heaven or not? But at the end of the day, one thing I can guarantee you is when Jesus comes and says, come further up and further in and you go through the door, you're not really going to give two rips about the library or the motorcycle or the Spider-Man room or whatever else it is that you hope for in your house in heaven. You're just going to be so happy with what's there and who's there. I mean, that's the other thing. Why? why Another reason why it's like a wedding reception. Jesus, this, the Bible uses this language so often about the wedding and the marriage feast and all of this. Weddings and funerals are the two times when you see your family. I mean, you, you can talk about, well, we schedule family reunions, but let's be real here. When is absolutely everybody all together? Weddings and funerals. And which one of those is the happy get-together? It's the wedding. So it's like a big reunion where you get to see all these people you haven't seen in forever, and you get to catch up, and you get to talk with them, and you get to laugh with them, and you get to reminisce. It's beautiful, and that's what heaven is too. It's a great reunion because you get to see all of the people that have gone on before you that you missed so much while you were here, and all of a sudden, here we all are. But more than that, again, it's like that, but greater, because you are going to see everybody who went before you in the faith, and nobody's going to be a stranger. You're going to look at St. John the Baptist, and you're going to say, Hey, guy, good to see you. And he's going to say, Hey, good to see you too. And you're, you're going to give each other hugs because you've always known each other. Now, you can't understand that now. I've never known him. I never shook his hand. I've never seen the man. Maybe you saw his knuckle bones if you went to the right place. <laughs> That's a joke about relics. Uh, but you don't know him. But when Christ comes and he leads you to his kingdom and you live in paradise, you know everybody. You know all of his children. You're just, you just do. Well, see, here's the other thing. Are, are you going to worry about that? I think not. I think judgment comes and what's done is done and you're so enveloped by the glory of the Lord that you're, 
content and happy where you are. Right, you have nothing to miss. And that sounds callous to say it here. Well, you have not, all at all about, what about, you know, Aunt Judy that was a complete atheist? Now I loved her to death, but what about Aunt Judy? Aren't I going to miss her? No. How could you? You're, you're right there in front of Jesus looking at him like Thomas did and putting your fingers into his nail holes. How can you think about Aunt Judy? And that's just, the, that's just the long and short of it. Now I'll tell you this. <laughs> so this is the benefit of being a pastor's daughter. Sirsha asked many questions on the way, on our long drive here, and then the next day, the long drive to uh, North Dakota about her grandpa. And then she said, yes, but when Jesus comes, then he'll wake up again, right? And I said, yes, yes. And she said, and she said well, then... then uh, he'll see Mr. Ma again, too. That's my grandpa. She calls my grandma Ma, and she, she looks at the picture of my grandpa, and she says, well, that's Mr. Ma. She says, well, and he'll see Mr. Ma, too, right? Yeah, and we'll see, you'll see your, you will see grandma's grandma and grandpa, too, right? And we said, yes, 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 all those people. She said, oh, boy, that's going to be nice. And we're also going to see Mrs. Heights, right? I thought, what a beautiful little girl. Well, yeah, we're going to see Mrs. Heights, too. Yes, absolutely. Oh, great, because I miss her. <laughs> and she said, we're going to see Mr. Olin Salen, too, aren't we? Said, yep, all of the people that we love, we're going to see them all. And it's going to be just happiness forever. But, the, but a happiness you can't even begin to fathom now. So you just trust what the Lord says about it and look forward to it. He, if the Lord talks something up to you, oh, you're really going to love this, it's, you know, there's, it's a good bet to say you're probably really going to enjoy it. So you have something to look forward to. Nancy, I, you had a hand up. I think that it was Ray Behrman's funeral that he left orders for them to have. I love that, left beer. orders. <laughs> he left orders for them to have a lot of beers. On him. On him. Did they have it in the church? I don't know. Did you? Do you remember Ray Dearman's? I don't remember, Nancy. I, I do remember his, him saying that, but that's, that's yeah. about all I remember. Daryl's back there. He might remember Ray's funeral. Daryl, do you remember your Uncle Raymond's funeral? Was there beer? Huh? Was there beer? Among other things. Among other things? Was it at the church? Huh? Was it at the church? No. Okay. Okay. Some people get squeamish about drinking in the church, which is funny because we're Lutherans. I mean, that's kind of like... Not, not in Germany. Yeah, not in Germany. My daughter experienced that firsthand. Yeah. yeah. Pastor, I guess I don't understand why we worry about books, motorcycles, or Spider-Man stuff in heaven. <laughs> <laughs> I, it's because we, we worry about the things that we love here. And I think that there is for people, for some people, especially for children, because that's where, you know, most of this stuff comes from children. I don't, I've never met an adult who worried about the Spider-Man room. Uh, but children have this idea of 
well, what am I going to, if I don't have my toys, what is there going to be for me to do? Or if I don't have the books I like to read, what am I going to do in heaven? And you say, well, it's going to be a church service that never ends. And they go, well, there better be a lot of crayons and paper then. <laughs> you know, what am I going to do? Because a child, a child doesn't understand happy, a, a child understands happiness even less than an adult does. A child gets happiness because these are the things I love. These are the things I like to do. And so we talk about happiness in heaven and they say, well, well then of course all of the things that I like to do here I will get to do in heaven too because those are great things and I love them and they make me happy. And I'll be happy in heaven, right? It's, it's the logic of a child. And um, here's, I'll tell you this, this is another Circe thing. Talk about logic of a child. She, she was asking more questions in the car the other day on the way home. And she said, so Grandpa is with Jesus, right? And we said, yes. And she said, so when, we put the, when they put the gravestone down on top of him, then Jesus will be in that stone, right? And I said, what? Why? She said, well, because he's with Jesus, so Jesus is with him, right? Well, where does Jesus live if Grandpa is in the ground? Where does Jesus, Jesus doesn't live in his coffin with him, does he? Where, is, where does Jesus live? So Jesus has to live in the stone, right? I say, boy, I, uh, you know, it's kind of a stumper. Never thought about that. <laughs> but it's, it's that kind of logic, like, huh, well, these are the things that make me happy here. And therefore, if I'm going to be happy in heaven, well, then heaven has to have those things too. And um, I use the motorcycle or the library or the Spider-Man room because they, are, they all came from children. Now, an adult doesn't maybe think of it that way, but I think an, I think an adult sometimes... You have to split the difference, I think. If you really want to think about what heaven's like, you have to split the difference between thinking about it like a child and wanting a motorcycle and thinking about it like an adult to where, well, it's going to be... You, the problem with adults is that you don't have an imagination and you don't have a sense of wonder because you know the secret of, you know, the, the things that you used to think were magic. And now you know the secret. Like, you know there's no such thing as magic anymore. It's just a guy doing tricks. He's just fooling me. You know the secret about X, Y, and Z, and you've been... You've been turned into a, you've been, you've been made pragmatic by your experience in the world. The world has beat you down and it is like, like a toe on a cigarette butt on the sidewalk. The world has ground your imagination out of you. And so we have to split the difference between the child who says, everything that makes me happy here will be in heaven because that's what will make me happy. Say, no, you'll be happy in heaven, but there will be better things than what you have here. And the adult who worries about their own things and say, oh no, there will, be, there will be a sense of wonder in heaven and imagination and beauty like you've never experienced it and joy like you've never experienced it. No sorrow. You know, that's, the adults are the ones who worry about, well, what about Aunt Judy who was the atheist? Uh, what, I'm going to really worry about them. How can I be happy in heaven if I know that they're not there? And, and you say, well, you're thinking a little too much like an adult. Because you're, you're thinking about the tangential things and you're not thinking about the main thing, which is you're with Jesus now. And so everything that you feel and think that you know from this world is just kind of thrown out. You don't have it anymore.
So yeah, those, those particular examples are, are childish examples, but they, I use them on purpose. What about a Ford Bronco? What about a Ford Bronco? Yeah. Boy, I tell you what, I'd love to have a Sasquatch option, six inch suspension, lift 36 inch all-terrain tire, Ford Bronco with a winch on the front, driving through those golden fields. <laughs> But something tells me there's not going to be any mud to drive through, and there's not going to be any broken down cars to tow, so probably isn't going to be worth a whole lot there. <laughs> I think there's going to be something better than that. Yes, sir? There wouldn't be fossil fuels. Yeah, there's no fossil fuels. Yeah, how would you drive it? I don't know. What's the renewable resource of heaven? I don't know. We'll have to put that on our list of questions to ask Jesus. Okay. Anything else about this? Okay, I want to look at the third commandment. And the third commandment is, of course, you shall... Yeah, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Um, I want to just look at this first paragraph here, and that's, that's the whole, that's, we're going to spend all of our time on this first paragraph. Here, Sam. That's just a Bible you have, right? Yes. Okay, there. I don't need that copy of it. So this is just the first paragraph. Remember, my translation is slightly different than the one you have. The word holiday is used for the Hebrew word Sabbath, which properly means to rest, that is, to cease from labor. Therefore, we usually say to stop working or sanctify the Sabbath. Now, in the Old Testament, God set apart the seventh day and appointed it for rest. He commanded that it should be regarded as holy above all other days. This commandment was given only to the Jewish people for this outward obedience, that they should stop toilsome work and, and rest. In that way, both man and beast might recover and not be weakened by endless labor. Later, the Jewish people restricted the Sabbath too closely and greatly abused it. They defamed Christ and could not endure in him the same works that they themselves would do on that day, as we read in the gospel. They acted as though the commandment were fulfilled by doing no manual work whatsoever. This, however, was not the meaning, but as we shall hear, they were supposed to sanctify the holy day or the day of rest. Now I'm going to tell you a little story. I had a friend who was a Jew, and he considered himself to be a very good Jew. And we had lots of conversations, he and I. He said some things that I thought were interesting. He said something about Jesus. He said, Jesus is, we fully acknowledge that Jesus is as close to being the Messiah as any man has ever come in the history of the world, but he was just ever so short that we can't say he was. And you say, okay. I mean, whatever. 
But he talked about observing the law. And he said, he said, I'm not allowed to trim my beard or cut my hair on the Sabbath, but there's a type of clipper that cuts a different way, and it's not technically cutting. So I do that on the Sabbath because I'm still keeping the law. And then he said, there's the law about not boiling an animal in its mother's milk or something like that, and he had a whole workaround for that. Yeah, but if you do it this way, then, like, if you cook it on the side and then put the milk in, then it's already boiled, so then you're not boiling it in the milk, and you can still eat it, and it's really tasty. So that's what we do, too. And, it, and look at that. We're still keeping the law. And he was so proud of all of these little workarounds that he did to where he could say, oh, but I'm still keeping the law. It's like when you're on the road trip and you're going, well, mom said I'm not supposed to touch you, but I'm not touching you, I'm not touching you. I'm keeping the law, I'm not touching you. you know, well, is that what mom and dad meant when they said don't touch? You know, I'm not crossing the line. Hey, well, that's, I'm still keeping the law. I, and then you, and then, you know, you all remember this, getting in trouble for doing something like that. I'm not saying it was that exact. Doing something like that and thinking in your head, well, what am I getting in trouble for? They told me not to do this, and I didn't do this. I did this. Why am I getting in trouble? You know, I don't think that that one is just me. <laughs> okay. And it's, it's that kind of attitude about the law. Well, I can, I, I'm not supposed to do this, but I can do this, and then I'm still keeping the law, and then I'm still good. And you know, there's another thing. This didn't come from my, my uh, Jewish friend. It came from, this was something else. But so there's a, there's a law where you're not allowed to walk outside on the Sabbath, something like that because walking is work, and you can't do work. But you can walk inside. So then they set up these walking routes where they put little tent tops or little pavilions across the whole route. So you can, walk, you can go out of your house and you can walk on the sidewalk, but it's covered, and that counts as being inside, not outside, so you're not breaking the law. And you're all chuckling at this, which means we're on the same page. And that page is, then what's the point of the law? Why does the law matter if you spend all of your time finding the loopholes and the weasel ways not to actually follow the law? Oh, I am following the law. Not really. And uh, so that's what this beginning of the third commandment deals with. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Don't, don't be doing any work. You shall rest from your labors. And 
it's easy to take that and to say, ah, well, what this commandment is really telling me is that I am absolutely forbidden from lifting a finger to do anything. So all of your Sunday dinners, shame. Bunch of Marthas over here. Jesus says one thing is needful and Mary has taken the better portion and she wasn't working. She was just sitting at Jesus' feet. You've broken the law. Or shame, shame, shame. Pastor saw you mowing your lawn on Sunday. Gentlemen, that's not allowed. But that's, I mean, that's just stupid. Like, you want to find you want to mow your lawn on Sunday? Fine, go mow your lawn. Pardon me. Yeah, come for lunch. Yeah, go eat a big meal. Uh, have a Sunday dinner. Mow your lawn. Put together a puzzle. I don't know. Do do something. Go out and have a family day. I don't know. The point of the commandment is is not to say, don't ever do any kind of work. Period and then give us the, well, what constitutes work? You know, like, well, that de you know, depends on what your definition of is is. Can I, can I interpret the law in such a way I can weasel myself out of it? Or can I just interpret it correctly and understand what it says? The law does not prohibit you from doing work, period. But it does say, hey, listen, you work really hard all of these days. This is the day the Lord is going to work for you. So in the Old Testament then, the Sabbath day was what day? Saturday, why? It's the day God rested. Because it's the day God rested and it began in the evening. Because the Bible says, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. So the, the Jewish calendar would go from, from p.m. to p.m., not a.m. to a.m. So um, what's the Sabbath day for, for, the, for the Christian church? I love you, but you have foiled me, and I, don't, and I don't like you for that. He said, every day, which is the correct answer, because what you're tempted to say is, what's the Sabbath day? Well, the old Sabbath used to be on Saturday, but now the new Sabbath day is Sunday. And so when we talk about observing the Sabbath day, we say, oh, well, that's Sunday, so that means no work on Sunday. Now, let me tell you something. The Swiss Reformation actually did that. The Swiss Reformation, those reformers came out and said, oh, no, 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 no. The old Sabbath day was Saturday. The new Sabbath day is Sunday. And therefore, when we observe the Sabbath day, no work. And you'd get, you'd get in trouble if you actually did work on a Sunday. And it's nice that uh, 
that stores will often be closed on Sundays or that restaurants are closed on Sundays or that X, Y, and Z is closed on Sundays. In Indiana, when I was at the seminary, there were still the blue laws where you couldn't buy alcohol on Sunday because that's the Lord's Day. You don't drink the, the devil's drink on the Lord's Day. So, so the uh, Ten Commandments worked their way into the secular legal system and that was due to the, the Reformed, the Calvinists, who made a really big deal of, well, they had their day, but now we have our day. But, but the reality is, we, we don't. Every day is the Sabbath day, and, and we, we'll talk about that in a minute. We observe the Sabbath day on Sunday, though. Why do we observe the Sabbath day on Sunday? Because it's the day of the resurrection. Because Jesus was raised, and now this becomes a holy day for us because it's the day of the resurrection, and every time you come to church is a little resurrection. I mean, it's the, it's, it's the whole gospel every time you come to church. You're getting it just in, in, you know, in a concentrated dose. Uh, and so... Why change that? I mean, even in the large catechism, in, in one of these paragraphs, Luther says, we still observe the Sabbath on Sunday. You have to have some day where everybody gets together for church. You just have to do that. Uh, we can't have a thousand Eucharists during the week for every individual that's going to just come and have their own private church because church isn't private. A church is a corporate thing, so when we come together and actually have church and actually honor the Sabbath day and sanctify it and keep it holy and actually live in God's word and come to receive his gifts, we never do it privately. We always do it corporately. And therefore, we need to have some day where everybody can come and all get together, and we have to have some kind of a schedule where we say, okay, this is the day we're going to meet, Wednesday nights, Sunday mornings, something like that. But the commandment is not limiting you to the only day that is the Lord's Day is Sunday and every, every, every other day, you know, pardon the language, but do whatever the hell you want. That's not, that's not what it is. Every day is the Lord's Day, but we observe the Lord's Day on Sunday because it's the day of the resurrection. And that is historic. So Luther says, we've always done it this way. The church has always met on Sunday because Sunday is the most holy day of days because that's the day that Jesus was raised. And therefore, why would we change the day that has been observed for 2,000 years? Well, we're just not going to do that. But we do have to, we do have to say that Sunday is not the same to us as the Saturday Sabbath was to the Jews. And the reason for that is in Hebrews, oh yes, we have just enough time to look at Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 3. <clears throat> We'll start just at verse 12. I have to do this to get into chapter 4, which is where I really want to look. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. How often? 
any day. This is the third commandment. An evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. So if you have an evil heart of unbelief and you seek to, to leave the living God, you are not sanctifying the Lord's day. Because as we, as we pray, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it because it is a Sabbath. Every day that the Lord has made is a Sabbath day because of Jesus, which we'll see here. But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end while it is said, today if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who having heard rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now, with whom was he angry forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? Do you, are you starting to see this? Enter his rest? Who doesn't enter his rest? The ones who forsake him, who turn away from him, who rebel against him. So, the, uh, remembering the Sabbath day and keeping it holy is more than just saying, go to church on Sunday. And as long as I go to church on Sunday, I'm keeping the third commandment. If that's the way you think, you're no better than my Jewish friend who said, well, this kind of clipper isn't cutting, so that counts. Well, if, I, if I'm going to church on Sunday, and uh, then that counts. I'm honoring the Sabbath day. All right, fine. Put, check my box off. It's not, it, that's not the way it works. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to come short of it. This is all the third commandment. Fear that you come short of entering the rest. What is the rest? Jesus is the rest. Remember that the Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a gift, and being able to live in the Sabbath rest that Jesus brings, which is the rest of the resurrection, that peace that he comes to bring, that is true Sabbath rest. And Sabbath rest is manifested, it is incarnated to you in the very real, physical, tangible things that Jesus delivers, i.e. the sacraments. That is where Sabbath rest is to be found. Manifested, incarnate, in the flesh. For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter that rest as he has said. So I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this place, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience. Again, he designates a certain day, saying in David, Today, after such a long time as it has been said, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. 
Today is the Sabbath day. What is the Sabbath day? Today. That's the answer to the question. If anybody says, well, what's the Sabbath day? Today. Doesn't matter if it's a Tuesday or a Friday or a Monday. What's the Sabbath? Well, today's the Sabbath. But when do we observe the Sabbath? That's on Sunday, set apart as a holy day. But for those who are living in Christ, every day is a Sabbath day. And therefore, keeping the Sabbath day holy is not only about not doing any work, not cooking a meal or mowing your lawn on Sunday. It's much deeper and much greater than that. We'll continue this next time, and I'll see you at the altar. <laughs>